0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents "Setting the Record Straight," where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Well, I want to talk about this. Let's uh, let's let's go into last week real quick. I want to share with you where we were last week as we talked about. What is the difference? Is there such a thing as a clergy-laity divide? And we talked about the priesthood of all believers. And I talked about what does that entail when it talks about a priesthood of all believers? We talked about these are people that are set apart by God. These are people who are to establish holiness in his temple. We talked about how we are the temple of the living, of the Holy Spirit. We are a temple of God. These are people who proclaim the gospel. They tell the good news their identity is found in Christ alone. We talked about how they have access to God without an earthly mediator. They don't need someone to speak on their behalf to God. They can go to him, and they have a great responsibility to know God's law word and to make it known to others. That's why we talked about the proclamation of the gospel. And they have a duty to uphold the signs of the covenant. And of course, when we talk about the signs of the covenant, what we're talking about God's covenant is what? They, is, is baptism, identification with Christ, and communion, and we're to uphold that. And for our congregation, what we do is we don't just, we, we believe that everyone partakes that has been baptized in a covenant family, and so from the youngest to the oldest, and that aspect. And so I, everything was last week was, uh, was predicated on this quote, and I want to share this quote with you, and I want to share this ba- passage of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about authority in the church today. The quote was the layman does not leave the church when he walks out of the building. If it is not his life in his calling, then he is never in the church on Sundays either. We have seen that every man is called to be an elder and elder over his family and his in his calling. The synagogue and for a time the church was constituted when ten heads of households, elders came together. It is the elders who established the church as an institution. To this day, in many denominations, the pastor is not and cannot be a member of the local church. Whether we agree with that or not, that's just a matter. He is fit. He is its teacher and pastor, but it's is the laymen who are the members. The church cannot be restricted to the place of teaching, teaching nor to the teaching ministry. It is a dominion ministry, and this dominion is being manifested in the life and the work of the members. Ultimately, when we look at that quote, one of the purposes of this is God calls his people to be his mouthpiece. God has called and instituted his people to do the work of ministry, and it's not just for an elite group of people that have a heading or an office. That is a fact, and where there are people who I disagree on other aspects, I don't disagree on this point because it is not pastor's. And the teachers in the church only that are called to proclaim the good news. It is it is a it is a call, a command by Christ on every believer. And I was listening to my, my one of my friends uh, up in up in Virginia this week talk about um, one of the things he looked at. He said, "I don't care if you're two years old in this church or if you're 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 a hundred years old in this church. It wouldn't matter." He goes, God has the same call upon the life of every person, and that is to proclaim his good news, not just about the good news towards salvation, but the gospel according to how it affects how it affects everything in our lives and that we would apply God's word to every aspect. And so whether you're 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 two years old and you're just getting to that place where you understand you're, you're just getting these basic things. The point of what we teach our children is what? Not just to teach a bunch of rules, but how do we apply God's word? So it is more important for us to look at the elder status. And when we're talking about this, I mean, those who are older, If you want to talk about the mature, what we are talking about here is the responsibility of the mature means those who obey Christ. But it goes on and our theme passage last week was 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. It says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's a beautiful thing to understand who we are in Christ Jesus. We are called as a people to do to do what he to to proclaim him in all his fullness. So as we come into this place, there's a great quote, and I, and I'll, I'll get to this, but we're going to talk about authority in the church today. And and this is like I said, I am pulling and rehashing uh, a pass. Uh, I don't do it often, but I, I'm coming back to bring forth this point of uh, from a former sermon. And so I want to, uh, it's a little parts here or there, and then I'm going to elaborate a little further. But if, when we talk about authority in, in the church. R.J. Rushanian, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm using his systematic theology for this on these quotes. He said, All authority in Scripture and all obedience is from God and to God. All false doctrines seek to displace authority and obedience from God to man. With every man his own God and law, authority collapses. This is a consequence of explicit humanism. Implicit humanism maintains a godly facade, but makes human authorities central. The greatest human authority is by virtue of his position and power all the more under God's authority than lesser men. The obedience of an Aaron and a Moses is more critical than that of an insignificant herdsman, because their authority affects more people. Authority gives only godly privileges. And it gives and requires great responsibilities. And so, when we look at this, and I want to say this today, if we're going to predicate the, we're going to start with this presupposition: authority is not mean more power. Authority has nothing to do with power. Authority means that one has has a privilege given by God, but it also requires greater responsibilities. Every privilege we have in life, and, and I want to say this, kids, when your parents give you privileges, it means it also comes with what? Greater responsibility. If you are not willing to meet the task of that greater responsibility, guess what happens? Privileges are taken away, right? And that's one of those aspects, you know, uh, privilege, when privileges say it's about trust, it's about it's more about than trust, but we are given, the older we become, the more mature we become, the more we're entrusted with, means we have greater responsibility. And when we don't meet the, the standard of that responsibility, our privileges are taken away. And that's one thing, before we even get to talking about godly authority, Any pastor who believes that his authority is based in the very office and not in his actions toward servitude, toward how he rightly handles the word of God and how he serves the flock that God has entrusted to him, if he thinks it's based in his title, he is already lost. His responsibilities are being neglected. If his responsibilities are being neglected in any way, he loses the privilege of being a pastor, an overseer in the church. When we don't take care of and that's why we'll, when we break this down today, you're going to see how closely tied the church and leadership or authority in the church is tied to the family. More than most people think. Authority is. Uh, firstly this morning, authority in the church is to be godly authority It is to be godly authority And I'm going to kind of read through this Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, there's a lot to cover here this morning And I don't, when I do a lot of notes I'm going to try to stay ahead But in 1 Peter 5, 1-5 he says So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Uh, shepherd the flock of god is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion not because you feel like you have to but what but willingly as god would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock Any authority that is there must be godly authority. It is not for personal gain. It's not for personal power. It's not to rule over others. It's to what? To be an example before God's people to what? To live and lead holy lives. Rushney went on and says, All too commonly on the current scene, this is what happens. There's contempt for godly authority Contempt for godly authority is seen as a mark of intellectual and religious freedom. Every church today faces a crisis. And that godly authority is replaced by ungodly authoritarianism and anarchism. Rebellion frequently parades under the banner of righteous indignation and protest. Given the prevalence of ungodly authoritarianism in the church and state, how do we contend against such an evil? Let me say this. What has happened, instead of there being a godly authority in place in most circumstances, and this is what we have. We have two ditches, okay? You drive down a road, you have a ditch on each side of the street, right? There's two ditches that are fine here. Instead of being a godly authority, you have instead an ungodly authoritarianism. That means a form of dictatorship from leadership. It's not even leading, it's domineering, And on the other side is complete anarchy. That means an means non, "archy" means hierarchy. There's no no standard above that person. Okay? So you either have ungodly, domineering, uh, power-hungry, power-mongering authority over someone that's dictating to you and trying to dictate every aspect of your life, or you have someone who's completely against all authority in general. Whether it's from God or not. And when you have that, when you don't have godly authority, you always will have these two ditches will go to one extreme or the other. Rather than calling people back to the standard of what godly authority is. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 through says, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. In fact, we're going to break this down in just a few moments, Okay. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the con- condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So as we pop, we're gonna fly through this. right? First, someone new to the faith is barred from the office of an uh, uh, from the office of overseer elder. I'm gonna say that it's it's point blank. And I want to share this with you. Just because the scriptures here, just because of the passage, look at our theme passage. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's there. He must not be a, what? a recent convert so he doesn't become cu- puffed up in conceit. Now, I want to say this. There is nothing wrong with anyone desiring. In fact, for someone to desire to oversee the church, to pastor a church, to be an elder, to have that desire is a must. Okay? It is a must for someone to have a desire. Someone who does not desire to oversee the church should not be trying to oversee the church. It's not bad. But when it talks about it, this person, first and foremost, must not be a recent convert. That means it must be someone who is not just recent to the faith. One, because to oversee and instruct to 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 guide into to in these principles, what you must have what a firm grasp on the Word of God, because we're even it's not hard for us to be deceived in certain aspects. But so, so that's one of those aspects. Not new to the faith. If they are new to the faith, they're barred from this office. It does not mean that they will not one day be an elder does not mean that one day they will not pass or oversee a flock or a small church or a gathering. It doesn't mean that they won't. It just means a new believer, we are instructed that we ought not to. Okay? Second, someone who is a man of experience and is and tested wisdom. An overseer, someone in authority, is to be someone who is a man of experience and tested wisdom. Now, I, I will say this before we get into too far, because this is what what's going to be what what people want to argue is I use the very term is to be a man of experience and tested wisdom. Well, what about those churches that have women elders or women preachers or what? Listen, I am not going to argue from a point of what society or what a denomination allows I'm going to argue exactly from what scripture gives us can after last week's message what can a woman not what what as a believer what can a woman not do can they share the gospel absolutely do they apply God's word in their work Whatever God puts before them, absolutely. Do they apply it in raising their children? Absolutely. They have. They have all. There's nothing that a woman in Christ cannot do. Are they any less saved than a man? Absolutely not. So when we talk about this aspect, it's not about taking away the possibility of 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 authority over something else. It's not about authority. It's not about about robbing women. Never has it been a part of that, because if we truly understand the fullness of what we're to be, when we talked about, um, if you look at Titus 2, which I haven't, I haven't even mentioned yet, but it talks about older women are to be have a certain lifestyle and a, way, a certain way of living so that they may be examples for the younger women. They have a full-fledged ministry and responsibility. It has nothing to do with whether or not they can be an elder. To be a mature woman in Christ is to take the fullness of the responsibility of Christ upon you, first for your household and for the generations and others around you. That's that's there. And if you're not obedient to that, why even worry about the office aspect when there's so much ministry left for us? So it says in 1 Timothy, it says, Therefore an overseer must be a... Um, uh, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and that's a very specific thing. Um, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. This is a man of. If you go through that passage of 1 Timothy three one through seven, you see the fullness of all the categories or the, the the characteristics of this man. There's something that specifically stands out though for me, and that's third. That this person is supposed to be someone who is able to teach. Able to teach. Now, what did I just share with you? Can any? Should we as mature believers in Christ Jesus, should we be able to teach God's word? Absolutely. We're not talking about the ability to speak. I want to share that with you all. There are a lot of seminaries that put out great Pep talk speakers—they know how to give a sermon, but they don't necessarily know how to teach God's word. They know how to regurgitate and give a great speech, but they do not know how to teach God's word. This it says if it's a this person that is one of the criteria. If you look at the passage, I underlined it. He is able to teach. Now, I'm going to read a quote from, uh, from Russian Union on this as well. It says, the bishop, overseer, must be apt to teach, able to teach. The word so translated is didatikos, skilled in teaching. This choice of wording is not accidental. The Bible does not use the word preach or preaching, evangelizo in the Greek. In other words, as well, which are translated as preach, publish, proclaim, and the like, such a function is assumed to be a task of a bishop or a presbyter. Do you understand this? A guy, a man who can teach, ought to be able to preach. And I want you to understand this: it should be assumed that the that a a, a pastor, a preacher, can preach. When we talk about teaching and overseeing, it's something separate. And when we get to that. It says, what Paul here stresses the aptitude and the ability to teach. We have all too many men ready to proclaim or preach the gospel who do it badly or indifferently or with poor preparation. They are thus a hindrance or a handicap to the house of God. In stressing the domestic or family virtues of the bishop or overseer, Paul stresses the ability to govern. The test of this ability is seen in the lives of his children, as well as in his sobriety, ability to His sobriety, ability to rule himself, his family, and his handling of money. The overseer must be in command and yet a gracious, helpful, and hospitable man, setting example in these things for others. He must likewise excel in his ability to communicate the faith. All too many bumblers are permitted to leave seminary simply because no one has the courage to tell them that they are lazy, incompetent, or unable to teach. I'm going to tell you something. That's pretty harsh. But it's true. Here's the fact: when we look at, if you were look back into this, the word, especially if you go back into the Hebrew, into the Old Testament, which is why I look at, always want us reminded that the Word of God is not two different, two different stories. It's a story from the beginning all the way through the end. One line, one story, one account of God. And in this, in the Hebrew, when it talks about those who are able to teach, when it talks about teaching, it's more about those who are able to discern the Word of God. And I'm not saying that the average person cannot discern the Word of God. But when he is to be able to teach, that means when he reads God's Word, he is able to discern and understand what he is teaching. Otherwise, he's just babbling on. So this is a major part of the aspect of those who are in authority in the church. Authority is designed not only by service, but ability in the moment to apply God's word. Not necessarily what we've heard. Not necessarily what our denomination has told us in the past. Not necessarily what we think but what God's word says distinctly. Fourthly, some, this is a person, someone in authority, this someone who has a good reputation outside the local church gathering. My wife has done a good job in this aspect of reminding me that you can be right, but you don't have to be a jerk. Why is that? You can be a right, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. When it comes to those who don't know Jesus Christ, who don't even believe in the God of the Bible, who say they don't, I'm not saying we have to win friends and influence people, but we do need to have to. We need to be able to have a good standing, a good reputation with those who are outside the church. I will say this: I've had men on job sites who've worked, who've worked, have done some work for me. That'll be in the middle of something, and someone says, "Hey, by the way, he's a pastor," and they apologize for their language. They apologize for all these things. And I'm gonna say this: It's not because a pastor has direct power, or a direct insight, or a direct pathway to God that'll keep them out of the out of the gates of heaven. But I will say this: There's an aspect about our reputations before men. If our re- reputation with outsiders is good, and I'm not saying because we water down the gospel, but I'm saying a reputation means I'm a patient man. I'm a man who honors God for, for, first and foremost. I'm a man who loves my family and cares for my family. I obey God's word in all these aspects. That, those things, a good re- reputation is important for an elder overseer outside the local church. And that's one of the things he must be well thought of in the theme passage by outsiders. So as I said, when we started this off, authority in the church is to be godly authority. It's instituted by him and, and the characteristics ought to be godly characteristics under him. But secondly, this morning, and I'm going to finish as we, we push forward. Authority in the church is to be biblical authority. And you might say, well, isn't godly authority biblical authority? Yes, Remember I said one is a descriptive and one is a prescriptive? One is characteristics. It's descriptive, right? Godly authority means this is a description of how we are to be. What is prescriptive mean? Biblical authority. When we are thinking of authority in the church, our presuppositions matter. Our presuppositions matter. And I will say this, it doesn't matter who you are, where your background is, where you come from, every one of us has presuppositions on any subject, unless we just have no clue about this thing. And as we hear about it, our presuppositions will guide us. Our presuppositions or our worldview will guide what we think about a particular subject. In regards to this, I want us to understand this. Biblical authority, as I said, did not begin in the New Testament. Eldership or overseeing of the church or God's people did not begin in the New Testament. It's not a new uh, invention. In fact, we'll, I'll, I'll read this quote by Rush and, and, and read scripture uh, to back it up. He says, three my, t- main types of polity dominate the church scene, Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Y'all remember this. I believe I spoke on this the other day. Each claims biblical and or earthly church authority for its form of government. In each case, there appears to be impressive evidences favoring the particular view. There is, however, a problem. If we begin with the present fact and try to find its antecedents in the past, we are likely to succeed because the present fact is a development out of the past. The key question, however, is this. Is it a faithful development of an original standard? There's another question with respect to church polity, where is the standard? Is it the early church and tradition or is it the Bible? If it is the Bible, it is all of scripture or as with some, the New Testament only or with dispensationalists some portions thereof? The origins of church theologians placed in the Old Testament and the calling of Abraham, if not Seth and Enos, when men began to call upon the Lord. Strangely, the government of the church is not likewise sought in the Old Testament, although the New Testament is clear that the familiar pattern, even the name of the officers, elders, was derived from the Old Testament and the synagogue. God is the sovereign and the governor of all creation. It would be curious indeed if the supreme ruler of all things made no provision for government prior to the New Testament. It would, in fact, be startling since all things or else are legislated if government in all areas were not prescribed. So what do we learn from this? Okay, well, in Exodus 18, we hear of uh, Moses was coming in and Moses was having to... Um, He was having to hear the people, and his father-in-law comes to him and says, listen, what you're doing is not good. This is Exodus 18, 13 through 26. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And I will tell you the principle of any pastor who thinks he can do it alone, especially the more people that come into his midst. If any elder overseer thinks one by himself can do everything, he's wrong. So... In our situation, we are very few families. But in that situation, as the situation were to grow and we were to have 10 families or 15 families or 20 families, what happens? One man cannot take care of all matters. And when we're talking about this situation, he he was judging cases before them. So what he tells him, he says, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Presuppositions matter. And I want us to understand that... that. Uh, Ability is not in the office, first and foremost. And when we raise up pastors or teachers, pastors, preachers, evangelists, or whoever, whether it be on TV or in our midst, and we raise them up to this platform or this pedestal, we think we can never do what they do. The fact is, is that God calls us in Christ Jesus that all men are to be able to judge wisely there ought to be godly men to do these things in our circumstance we've even had situations where if someone talks about something let's say it was something brought up here we've had those circumstances right here that might not be biblical or might not be kosher with and mashing those scripture we don't ought to, what do we we don't yell out and say you heretic we haven't done that what do we do we counter that with god's word and we talk through it and not just myself. I'm not the the final authority. God's word is the final authority. And so, what we're doing if I do, if I were to take it, I, that means I take full responsibility. But when the God's men, God's people, rise up and speak on behalf of these things, what happens? We bear the burden together regarding obedience to His word. So, when we talk about eldership, I want us to say this as I push through this this morning. Eldership originates with a family. Eldership originates with the family. In fact, it's familial in its completeness. Eldership eldership originates with a family. And I'm, I'm reading what Rochenini wrote, but it's, it's, it's a, it basically says the office of elder was more than tribal. It wasn't about which tribe you you went you were from. It originated in the family. The head of the family was its elder. In fact, as a people of God, if if we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior, each head of household ought to be its elder. Is that always so? No. God thus ordained that the family be the nucleus of government. Moses was not called upon to create a novel and rootless government, but to use and develop an existing one, which in the providence of God is basic to all government. Now, understand that it wasn't something that all of a sudden, hey, there's families. Uh, We need to create families in order to to do. No, it was something God used in the moment where they already are. And although there was various forms of eldership throughout Scripture from elders of of the priests, judges being spoken of as elders and other specialized elders, our concern today, like Rushney's, is one of church polity. How does the church function and the reality comes down to this no one can do it alone. We're going to wear ourselves out. Is there a time? Well, I'm not even going to go there. Oldership begins in the home, it means godly men leading in godly ways, leading their families. And that does not mean women do not lead in some form or function, they do as well. But what we're saying is, is we we before a man could be an elder in the church or over the church or have that, what must he do? It comes back to his responsibility to his family. That's part of the criteria. If he can't manage his own family, how can he manage the church? <laughs> and many a man needs to understand. I've seen many a man who have stepped down for a period of time. Why? Because there was an aspect of their house that needed to be put in order. And it wasn't an embarrassing situation for them to do. What's an embarrassment is when these godly men don't have their families in order. And then it's found out that they've been hiding it the whole time. It's more godly. It's more righteous. It's more humbling to see a man who will step down and do so. The eldership, Rushing, he said, go ahead and go on to the next quote. He said, ha, represents a hierarchy of graded authority. Every man who is a free and responsible head of a family is an elder. And then over ten families, one elder exercises government and oversight. Problems too difficult for him are passed up, and there are elders over fifties, hundreds, and thousands above. Overall and above all, we find seventy elders ruling with Moses. The original 70 cardinals in the College of Cardinals were once all elders and for centuries were laymen only. They weren't a pre, they weren't a private class. What were they? They were godly men. Therefore, biblical authority requires that men and families be trained to govern. And this is where the church goes astray. This is where authoritarianism, ungodly authoritarianism rises because if you see the elders or the pastors as a private class of citizens who are to rule over and to dictate, that means they have not been properly trained and guess what else will happen? They will not train the church to rule themselves and self I'm sorry, to self govern themselves. Rushdie wrote, the biblical, this biblical form of government requires that men and the families be trained to govern. The basic government is on the family level, and all other forms of government rest on this. This means that a society is as secure as its family structure. This is a fact often confirmed by sociology and psychology and with reason, because God is so ordered life. This structure ensures a strength in government, whether in a church or state, it's a stabilizing force. When Paul cites the qualifications of a bishop or elder— His stress is on the man's ability to rule his own household, to rule himself and his faithfulness, responsibility, and success as a husband and father. The foundation of the office and qualifications are familiaristic. What this pattern of eldership does is create a network of responsible and governing men on the local level. Government is not primarily a function of remote state officials or high-ranking church officers, but of every man in his place. That is why. That is why. It is not to be a presbytery of of these men who rule over individual families. In fact, the church elders, if you have a large enough church, the point of the elders is not to come into individual homes and tell them how to do everything. My job is not to walk into your household and to tell you, you know, wives, you need to be washing dishes more often and not leaving this, or saying this is sinful because you don't do this. The church does not come into your house and tell you how to run your home. These leaders are by example. They lead by example, by living example before you. And if they can't do it themselves, how dare they tell you to do it? 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And here's the fact. The church's responsibility is not to dictate how you run your life and your family. The church's responsibility is to What? To equip the saints for works of ministry. That's what Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I don't even have to read, do the, read it, but it, it put it up there. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. The pastors and elders' responsibility is to equip, to proclaim it, teach it, do it. This so we can be mature and complete and whole and united in all things. Built up as the body of Christ. And for a pastor who does not want to teach what it means to become wise in God's word, what it means to lead your family well, what it means to, to be a godly example before others, is sinful. And the reality is, and I'm not going to read the quote that we have here. Uh, Bojidar, years a couple years back, Bojidar Marinov made a quote. And he said, one of the problems is today— one of the problems that we have today is that we have a class of people who are supposed to be the professional teachers. And what happens if you come into the church and you join the church, your membership is aligned with it, you come in. And what happens if the, belief, the individual in the pew becomes more wise than the one who is teaching? What is the response to be? In most situations, what happens is is when they begin to teach things that go past the pastor, what happens is, or the pastor, the elders, they tell them the lesson, you need to be quiet or you need to leave, which is wrong. What happens when there are other people who become more knowledgeable about God's word than the pastor? We ought to rejoice. We ought to what? We ought to we ought to encourage that we ought to live it's not an attack on someone's authority or leadership because someone is more knowledgeable the reality is there are many people who have more time to read than I do today I can't read as many books as I do. I used to read four or five books a month I can't read it takes me four or five months to read a book sometimes now so if someone surpasses my knowledge on a subject, I'm not to say, listen, but you're not an elder, therefore you need to hush and wait and wait on me, and you need to stay down below me in your knowledge. And your what happens either is there's someone told to be quiet, or they're kicked out of the church, and that's wrong. Our insight ought to be, as pastors and teachers, as elders or whoever who is in godly authority, biblical authority, ought to be this that we train people and equip them, that the whole body becomes mature, that the whole body becomes strong. What happens when it's so the gospel goes out more and more? You see the body of Christ growing. You see communities changing. You see homes changing. You see communities and counties and states and nations that is a godly place to live. So then the question comes up on the last last thing today. What then does biblical authority look like at the local church gathering? And we're going to break this down next week fully, but I want you to see. What does it look like at the local church gathering? Local gathering of the church. Well, First Corinthians 14. 26 through 33 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Key, I underline this. Let all be things be done for building up. Whatever we do when we gather, however we gather, whether we sing songs, whether we do creeds, whether we pray, how we pray, whatever, whatever we do, whatever it happens, let it be done for the building up. Of who? My, the pastor's ego? No. Building up of what? We just read, to build up the body of Christ, correct? If it is not centered on the building up of the body of Christ, then we're wrong. And I'm going to share this with you very simply. We had a man visit one time that talked, he, 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 he encouraged me to read this book by this man and what was interesting is I found the book for free online and I started reading but it was on this thing called the regulative principle of worship and whereas I, I, I understand where the regulative principle of worship comes from listen the point of the worship service is not about the tradition the road tradition It's not about going through the motions. What is the point of preaching, let's say, what is the point of prayer, of singing, reading scripture, or preaching if it doesn't build the body of Christ up to be what he's commanded us to be? There are many a church this morning that will be out there preaching and teaching something, but it's not for the benefit of the body of Christ. It's just to get a message out. And I'll say this, I don't want to just put a message out. I just don't want to fill up our Sunday. Because you know what? If that's what it was about, I have a lot of other things I could do. There are many people who podcast day in and day out on Facebook. They obviously have plenty of time to talk about things. The question is, how is it building up the body of Christ? And that... That is the most important thing we could look at. He said, things be done. So if anyone speak in a tongue, let there also be two or at most three, and each in turn, let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. So if you have a larger gathering and you have people proclaiming, they don't do it all together at the same time. Well, we do it in turn. In fact, it says, Revelation is made to another sitting there. Let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. There's, there are times when questions come up or, or there's times when things need to be hard done in such a way. So what? So the body is built up. So there's no confusion. If there's confusion, questions should be asked. But the local church gathering is not one of confusion. It's not necessarily one of disorder. And, and, and I always say this for those, because I know that there's people who are online that will hear this, and they'll hear the baby in the background. That old statement, if there's no crying, the church is dying. And I believe this wholeheartedly, that when we look at this, what the local gathering of the church is, it's not about shutting people away. Or shutting children away It's so that we all can hear the word of God That we we learn God's word Little by little And we pick it up Little parts of it here and there It's for the building up Of the entire body And the body starts with the infant on And I love that this is the point of Of, of the proclamation For prophesying or preaching What is the point of that? so that all may learn and be encouraged. Listen, this is not some country club social where someone who tells the best, best best story everybody should shut up and listen to that next best story. It's not about some bunch of group of guys getting out their instruments and playing their new revelation song of Jesus and hey listen to what I what I did. It's not about that. If it doesn't build up the body of Christ and it does not bring It does not bring the focus to him. It's not of him. We ought to do things in such a way that honor him. And disorder, God's not a God of diffusion. He's not a God of disorder. And beyond that, we'll talk about that in the next week, about what the church gathering looks a little bit more like as we continue on. Um, Let's pray and close this morning. I know this kind of left it kind of hanging, but I needed to get to this point so we could talk about next week and the following week because we talk about more about uh, what the gathering is, abuses in the church as well. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for this day. I thank you for for bringing us together. For those who are sick and cannot be here, those who are the Lord God, or they they have the weather is keeping them away, or there might be work. Or Lord, I, I I pray that. For all those who will hear that, Lord God, that they'll be edified and they'll be lifted, that you'll be, uh, they'll, they'll turn to you. And Lord, will look to you for their knowledge, Lord God, for wisdom on life and family and what it means to be the church of the living God. Father, I pray for um, that as we, we go forward this week, that we understand that authority in the church is not an authoritarian, ungodly authoritarianism, but is a servant leadership. And Lord God, and it begins with a um, as an example, both it's godly and it's biblical. And Lord, for us to to take to take a abuses and say because there are abuses, we will no longer we we won't identify that the offices that God set forth is just as wrong as the abuse itself. Lord, as we continue to talk about that in the next week or so, the Lord, I pray that you will you will strengthen us. That you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and the Lord God, whatever comes, the Lord, we will, whether our, whatever our presuppositions are, that Lord God, that we'll come to this place. Whatever you speak, Lord God, we will obey and we will do. Go before us, and we ask these things in your name, Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.